From Buffalo, Toronto Public Media and WBFO, this is Buffalo What's Next, Producers Picks. Highlights from our daily program on race, segregation, and our shared humanity. Today, a special program. Rather than bringing you a replay of several interviews, we instead have an extended segment with the people behind a story about the Seneca Nation and the sacrifice that was thrust upon them when the U.S. government flooded their land and created the Kinzawa Dam. They told us it was for the good of the public. We know now that that wasn't it. Indian removals, one of these horrible euphemisms for ethnic cleansing. Try to eradicate people and move them to someplace else. You don't kill them all, but you do get rid of them. We were an ancient people in a modern world in the eyes of the people who were trying to get us out of the way. Soon the rising waters of the Allegheny River, impounded by earth and concrete, will attend the birth of a major lake and toll the death knell for a valley. Can you point fingers at who betrayed us? We'd have to have a thousand hands to point at the ones who betrayed us. I don't know who to be angry at because it wasn't an individual that hurt me. It was a government. That's the opening to the public television documentary, Lake of Betrayal, which tells the story of the Kinzua Dam on the Allegheny River and its impact on the Seneca people. The documentary aired on PBS stations nationally, was carried on Amazon Prime, and is currently available to stream on the Indigenous Connections broadcast series. For Native American Heritage Month, we invited the filmmakers to join us on Buffalo What's Next to discuss the film and its impact. With us is Paul Lamont, director, Scott Sackett, producer, Caleb Abrams, citizen of the Seneca Nation and associate producer. I welcome you to Buffalo What's Next. Tell me about your experiences uh, in terms of doing the research first for the documentary. Uh, this is Paul, and uh, <clears throat> it's great to be on this program. Thanks for having us. Um, research, we um, approached Vision Maker Media, uh, who funds, it's a, a group that funds um, indigenous stories and native filmmakers. <clears throat> so we approached them about uh, getting a research and development grant for the film. And it was a six month uh, process for us to, to do the research on the program, uh, which really entailed um, doing, a, doing a lot of pre-interviews with uh, people from the Seneca Nation who experienced the uh, displacement and the removal from their, uh, from their homelands from their territory and um so we we did a number of pre-interviews talked with people tried to learn the story from the inside out because that was the most important thing uh being non-native um was it really our story to tell 
And we wanted to make sure that we got the story right. We wanted to tell it, as I said, from the inside out. And um, so part of that, part of the research was uh, finding finding Caleb and uh, having him uh, on, on our team uh, to, to kind of guide us through the process um, of, um, of working with the Seneca Nation. And, um, and, and he was a, a great, a great uh, um, asset to our research and helping us find the right people, talk to the right people, and get the proper information. Now, each of you have different reasons for wanting to tell this story. Um, so, Scott, why don't we start with you? Why, why this story in particular? I stumbled on the story accidentally. I, I, found, uh, I found it in a collection of essays by Edmund Wilson, who wrote for The New Yorker, and those essays would have been written in the late 1950s. And there was this one essay that describes the whole backstory of U.S. government taking these treaty-protected lands. As a lifelong Western New Yorker, as someone who's really interested in area history, and as someone who spent a lot of time, who had spent a lot of time in the Alleghenies as a, as a hiker and a camper, what struck me was I'd never heard this story. And I thought it was really an important story to tell, but it wasn't until many years later when Paul approached me and he said, what do you think about doing this as a national film? And I thought that story had to be told. And I didn't understand why we didn't know about it. Caleb, how about you? Obviously, as a citizen of the Seneca Nation, you approach this much differently than any of the rest of us would. Um, what made you want this story to be told? Well, my father was among those Senecas that were forcibly relocated, as well as my grandparents, my uncles, a lot of my extended family were among those 600 plus Senecas. And I grew up hearing this story from the time that I can remember. It was something that I just have been aware of as long as I can, rec as long as I can recall. And it wasn't until I went away to college. I went to, uh, I first went to Jamestown Community College, about 15 minutes from the reservation, from the territory boundary. And I was just blown away by the ignorance of my classmates. And frankly, some of the instructors as well. I, I couldn't kind of wrap my head around how little people knew about native people, let alone the Seneca Nation who, as I said, was 15 minutes, 15 miles away. What type of things were you hearing from them? Frankly, some people didn't realize that the Seneca Nation existed, that it was so close by. When they found out that I was native, that I was Seneca, they some people were expecting me to be wearing a breech cloth or, 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 you know, feathers to class. They couldn't believe that I was, I drive a Prius. And, um, and so it was, it was during that first year of undergrad that I decided to produce this student film called Remembering the Removal. And it was sort of in response to some of those, those conversations that I'd been having. And I was really 
ill-equipped to speak to that. You know, I, I didn't really know how to hold space or how to educate people. And so I guess I thought that this film course that I was taking would be an opportunity to, you know, tell some of this story, some of this history and, and package it in a digestible way. And it was through that film later uh, that I produced that in 2010 in 2013 is uh, when Paul and Scott found me. So, you know, the desire to see this larger film produced, I think was still born out of that desire to have this story shared. Uh, at first, just with my classmates, but when the opportunity to take it national came along, I, I jumped at it. I, I thought, what an incredible opportunity to get the story out. And Paul, how about you? I came to the story about two decades ago. Um, I was working on another film, another PBS film. I was hired to work on a film that dealt with another issue uh, with, uh, with the Seneca Nation. And one of the interviews, uh, someone was talking about Kinzua Dam and the, the, the dislocation and the taking of the, uh, uh, the native lands and the uh, treaty-protected lands. And that was just a very, very short piece within an hour-long film. And I thought, boy, you know, I never heard of this. And I don't live that far away from uh, Allegheny. I have never heard of it. And I was really, really just kind of aghast that something like this had happened. And so I thought, you know, this deserves more than two or three minutes in, in a, a, as a segment of another film. It deserves a treatment on its own. So I just kind of like kept that idea in my head. This is going back to 1989, 1990. And around 2001, 2002, I, I, I revisited the story, but... Um, uh, the timing just wasn't 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 right for me, and so then, after that, I had to flash forward to uh, 2013 2014. Um, I was reading in the paper that the 50th uh, year of removal was coming up, uh, the uh, remembrance, and I thought, well, maybe the time is right uh, in 2015 to 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 go back and look at the story and really pursue it and pursue it hotly. Um, so that's when I reached out to Scott and talked to him about it. And we both agreed, you know, this story has to, has to go national. Uh, we have to tell it. And so we, we, we pursued it. And that's when we approached Vision Maker, Me Vision Maker Media for the, uh, for the research and development funding. Now, Caleb, you were talking about being able to hold space um, first, talk to me about the challenges you faced or you face continually um, deciding to be an educator for your people. I mean, that's can be an exhaustive, exhaustive uh, thing to do. Um, so tell me, talk to me a little bit about that first. That's a good question. Um, I think with time, I've become a bit more selective in, in what battles I choose to fight or what arguments I'm willing to have, or even what sort of, you know, talk I'm willing to tolerate. Um, but I think that comes with practice, that comes with age, and that uh, 
comes with experience. And like I said earlier, when I was when I was an 18 year old, 17 year old freshman, I really growing up on territory and, and Salamanca is such a unique city in that it leases land from the Seneca Nation. So even the non Senecas that I grew up with still have a level of familiarity and exposure. And so I was completely ill-equipped to try to have these conversations. Uh, and I was a shy kid too. I really, I didn't, but I, you know, or sometimes something would happen in a class, people would say things disparaging or incorrect. And I didn't know how to speak up about it. And I think with time, I've really, I've, I've come to understand that part of what I was doing in, in producing, you know, student films and documentary films was trying to craft an experience or, or a lesson or, you know, a bit of story in a, a package it in a way that I, I thought people might be able to digest or, or receive well. Um, but I think too, I think to get more, to speak more to your question, I think it's about out the gate being able to frame conversations uh, on my terms, you know, and not, while, while, while it's always important, I think, to have a mind for your audience, we can't bend to their limited understanding. It's important to set the terms of that conversation and, and create the proper context for them so that they, as best you can, to help them keep up with what you're about to, <laughs> what lesson you're about to take them for, take them on. Um, it's a great question. I, I could probably talk about that for a long time, but I think I'll leave it at that for now. Does this film hold space? I'll open that to anyone who wants to answer. Uh, briefly, I, I would say yes, I think it does. Uh, and I give a lot of that credit to Paul and Scott because from the very beginning, they were approaching this film with their eyes and ears uh, wide open. You know, Paul mentioned wanting to tell the story uh, from the inside out, and I think that's exactly what we tried to do. Um, and they were very willing to center and amplify those voices that that knew the story, that lived the story, and, and could tell the story like no one else. Um, and I think, as I was saying too, that I think it... it, it it is very considerate of its audience, which is a national audience. Um, even though I know that we all had sort of the, the Seneca people as our, as our, their willingness to embrace it was sort of a measure of success for all of us. But there was always this awareness that a national audience who knows nothing about any of this should be able to sit down and watch this film and keep up. And I think it does that as well. And I think that that was the balancing act, trying to keep all those things in play. Now, Paul and Scott, you are not of any Native American nation. How difficult was it for you all to to tell this story? Well, I don't, I'm not sure if it was if difficult is the right word because we all wanted to do it so so badly, <laughs> um, but. It was complex. Um, I will say that. And being, you know, being non-native, 
um, we had to gain the trust of the Seneca Nation and the people that we were talking to. Um, a lot of people didn't want to talk really at first. Um, it took some time to let let them know where the, the place we were coming from and how we wanted to tell the story and how we knew that it was their story. It wasn't ours. Um, and the, the, the Seneca Nation was just, they were, they were tremendously helpful in the, in the, in the, uh, in the fact that they stayed back somewhat for us, didn't interject any type of editorial control, um, let us tell the story because once they felt there was a comfort level amongst all of us, I think the, 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 the Seneca nation, the people we were talking to, they, they, they felt comfortable with us. They got to a point where they could then really open up. And I think it was, uh, a bit, uh, it was a, it was a cathartic experience for many of the people that we spoke with to finally be telling these stories because I don't think they really spoke about it much. And Caleb might be able to address this too, um, that this was always an undercurrent, Kinswood Dam and the, the uh, d displacement and the loss of land. It was always an undercurrent and a lot of people weren't talking about it, but it was always there. So by doing this film, I think it was a somewhat of a release for people uh, of the Seneca Nation. And um, so difficult to tell the story, difficult in the sense that um, it takes time to build those relationships in order to be, tell an honest, truthful, objective story. And Caleb mentioned the fact that, you know, dealing with a national film, you really have to tell the story in, in a way that people understand it. And it is such a complex story we felt that it could be embedded in the fact that <clears throat> these things have been happening to uh, Native nations across the country for decades. And by showing that, and by understanding there was this, this, um, this idea of termination, which was an actual U.S. policy, to get those ideas out on the table that everybody could relate to, because I think people in general can understand what it might feel like, even if they haven't gone through it, what it might feel like to say, we're going to terminate your, uh, <laughs> your sovereignty, or we're going to take your home from you and your land and burn your house down. I think people intrinsically can understand that and feel that. And we wanted to get that story out there in a way that people could understand. There's certainly this lived trauma experience that is generational. I mean, that, that trauma does is passed down to, um, you know, through generations. It, we've seen that in other demographics that have experienced trauma. How does the act of storytelling 
lead someone to catharsis? Scott? I don't know if I can answer that. That is very difficult. Um, what I discovered in the process was the answer to my question, I think, why this story wasn't told, why we didn't know about this story. I was looking at it from you know, a, a legal standpoint, uh, a standpoint about the earth, a standpoint about the Seneca people. And when Paul and I got deeper into it, of course, Caleb knew the story, then we realized just how painful it was and the pain 50 years on. And the, I mean, the people to whom we spoke would still break out and cry over what happened. It was a traumatic experience. Didn't know that going in. And I'm so grateful we had Caleb there to help us because it was very, very difficult. Um, and Caleb is the one that said that later on, that the people who did open up to us felt that catharsis, that they were holding it in, they didn't want to share. I'll just relate one story. Um, and Paul and Caleb have heard me say this before. Paul and I were there. Um, we went to a Remember the Removal, uh, Remember the Removal event that they hold every year at, at the end of September. And this was just after the film came out. Um, and there was this young Seneca man, probably in his 20s. And he came up to Paul and to me, and he was just so full of emotion. He came up and he shook our hands and he said, thank you. Thank you for telling the story. And it was obvious that, you know, he was very moved by the telling of the story. Is there some type of ceremony or some type of way, Caleb, that um, the nation as a whole sort of deals with a, with a, a psychological traumatic event like this? I know there are some people who would have healing circles and, um, you know, other types of cleansing rituals and ceremonies. Um, is there something like that in the Seneca paradigm? Well, as, as Scott mentioned, uh, at the end of every September, the Seneca Nation hosts an event called Remember the Removal. Uh, it's described as a a day of remembrance and a celebration of survival. And it began, I believe, in the 80s. Um, it's, it's now an annual event. And on this day, we will gather at one of the community centers and travel down to one of the uh, condemned communities, uh, one of the communities that's not underwater but falls within the floodplain. And we walk from one of those communities uh, Sometimes we'll bus down or walk back to one of the community centers and there's photos and food and presentations and it's a way for the community to gather and remember what happened to our people and, and, and how they fought and how we've built back in the decades since. Um, and, and, and every year we there's a, an opportunity for survivors, elders who live through the the forced relocation to to share their experiences as well. Um, in truth, I don't know that it's that that day, you know, is is a source of healing exactly for the people who lived it. But I do know that it's really important 
for those people who didn't live through it to be exposed to these places and these stories and, and, and to take a moment and really reflect on what happened to their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and how radical this shift, this overnight shift was for our people. Um, you know, I'd go so far as to say that, that the forced relocation that came about as a result of Kinzua is the single most uh, defining event that the Seneca Nation has, has lived through in the last hundred years. Um, the shift was so radical and so sudden, so violent, so traumatic, and forced our people overnight. They had bills that they didn't have previously. You know, a lot of homes didn't have running water or electricity, indoor plumbing, and so they had to pay for those bills. Some people lived on hundreds of acres of land, and they now lived on three, three acres that they couldn't farm on, whereas before they had sustained themselves through the land that way, hunting and fishing, trapping, gardening, farming, and they couldn't do that anymore. And I'm very careful not to say that this event led to the loss of language. We didn't lose anything. All of this was taken from us. But it did deal a significant blow to a lot of those uh, cultural land-based practices and, and our language, which especially over the previous two decades, we spent a lot of time building back um, in large part due to the, the, the monies made available through the gaming operations that the Seneca Nation has today. A lot of that money goes back into the communities to support these efforts and, and the government. There's a particularly moving piece of historical footage in the film um, when the Seneca school children uh, are, there's footage of them being in class, reciting um, the Pledge of Allegiance, singing. Um, tell me about, A, how you found that and, and what, that, what that means watching that, how that feels to watch that. Well, do you want to talk about the Forbes footage? Because I'd like to talk about that scene a little bit. Um, we were really fortunate to find that footage. Um, there were, I think, 17 cans of 16 millimeter film that um, Alan Forbes, I believe it was Alan Forbes, um, had shot. He was a filmmaker um, and um, uh <laughs> sociologist um i believe am i correct in that mm. or anthropologist i can't remember. anthropologist yes he was an anthropologist and a filmmaker and caleb one day he was working in the um, uh, archives at the seneca nation he said hey i found these things <laughs> he goes do you think they'd be of any use and uh we said, whoa, <laughs> we, uh, we took all the footage to before opening it because it was sitting in an unheated um, area. Um, we didn't know if there was any good or not. So we took the 17 reels of uh, footage to Kodak in Rochester. 
had them take a look at it, and they were all pristine, which was wonderful. And um, so we had it all transferred, digitized, cleaned up, digitized, and were able to use a lot of that footage because that really um, put us in that environment at that time. And to, to have that footage was, was you know, it was, <laughs> it, was, it was a gift. It was a true gift. And thankfully, Cable, Caleb was working in the archives at the time and found it uh, for us. But, but yeah, Scott can address probably that, that scene that you're talking about because we were all, all moved by that. Yeah, uh, I mean, the, the Seneca Nation knew that film footage existed somewhere, but I think it had become lost. And Caleb is the one that found it in, a, in, in the boxes. Um, that is one of my favorite scenes. It may be Paul's as well. What, what, there was someone who watched the film who, who said great things about the film, but then asked me, he said, why, why did you stage that scene there with the, the school children, the Seneca school children uh, reciting the Pledge of Allegiance and singing America? And I said, we didn't stage that. That's original. And this person really thought that we um, created that because it's so telling. You have this tension. You know, these, these children were so traumatized. They were told that people are going to come in and take your houses and burn your houses down and you're going to have to go live someplace else. And we felt that scene in particular does sort of double duty in terms of storytelling. You have these beautiful children in school. It should be a safe place. They're in their home. They're in their community. And they're doing what I used to do you know, every day at the beginning of class. I would say the Pledge of Allegiance, and we would sometimes sing America. And viewers should watch this. And even school children today watch this and they say, wait, something's wrong here. <laughs> something's terribly wrong. The U.S. government is coming in and taking their lands and they're reciting the Pledge of Allegiance and they're, and they're singing America, my country tis of thee. And we worked with um, a, a film composer, brilliant man, um, Brent Michael Davids. He's of the Mohican Nation. And he really accentuates this underlying tension, not just of this scene, but really the tension of the whole film comes down to that. When the U.S. government breaks a treaty, breaks a sacred promise, and affects these young, beautiful children. Um, and you feel that tension in his music. Something is really terribly wrong here. It, again, it's one of my favorite scenes. And, you know, we've shown this film uh, in many venues, many university and colleges, but we've also shown it in, in high schools as well. And, and students pick up on this, right? It, it's, it's pretty obvious. At the time, however, Congress's decision was based on a policy known as termination that sought to eliminate all tribal sovereignty. Between 1945 and 1960, 113 tribes were terminated and nearly 1.4 million acres of land was taken. And they wanted to wash their hands of us and be done with us. They didn't want no more Indian law. They didn't want special programs for Indians. So that uh, was the value in the 50s and 60s. Just uh, wanted us to disappear. They wanted us to just Go away, just melt in. Just, you know, what's wrong with you?
Have there been many criticisms of the film? I mean, generally speaking, uh, you can't please everyone all of the time, certainly. Um, But a film that really pits the Seneca Nation against sort of this this large conglomerate that is Pittsburgh uh, and what they're wanting to do, you're going to have people who will feel pretty strongly on both sides. So how how has the film been been received and and you know has there been criticism uh, the, the film has been really well received um and i i was actually to be honest with you quite surprised how pittsburgh embraced the film um it's been shown pittsburgh has uh, we, we were interviewed for a pittsburgh station they they've shown the film numerous times uh we did a presentation in pittsburgh um so they really embraced it, which surprised me. Um, I did have one, one time we were doing a screening at Syracuse university and a woman came up and said that we, we, we weren't brutal enough in telling the story. We should have, we should have gone on, I guess, more in depth in her way of thinking into just you know, show more of the fires, show more of the, uh, of the taking of the land, the, uh, just get, get her fingers in deeper and, and dig deeper on it. Um, but there's a very fine line when you're telling a story of going too far. You want to take your viewers to a certain point where they understand and can feel. But if you start piling on <laughs> then you've gone too far so there's a very fine line but she she, she was uh a, a, i'm not sure if she was from the seneca nation or not i don't recall she was uh she was indigenous but she just felt we needed to hit harder and that was that's really been the only criticism that i have heard from the film there were some people who felt that we should not have put in the segment on Corydon in the film, uh, the white community that mm-hmm. lost. And there were several white communities and towns that were, were taken as a result of uh, Kinswa. Um, but we felt that it was, it, was a, it was part of the whole story. And there were some that said, well, it shouldn't be there because this is a Seneca story. But it's a human story as well. It is Seneca, but it is human, and others were involved, and others felt the uh, the, the loss as a result of Kinsey. So we felt it was an important piece of the overall story. How was the film received uh, on the Seneca Nation? Yeah, so I mean, I was from the time I signed on to the project in 2013 until. The film finally premiered in 2017, four years later. I was kind of holding my breath. <laughs> uh, I, I, I knew, I, I spent a good couple of months uh, vetting Paul and Scott before I signed on. Uh, and every, you know, at every turn, they continued to prove themselves to be the collaborators I hoped that they would be, that they'd be the right guys for the job. Uh, so I knew internally that we were doing something good. Uh, but in a way, we were still working in a bubble. 
And so it wasn't until those premiere screenings that I finally got to uh, exhale a little bit and we started getting that positive feedback. Uh, and like Paul said, it, it, I think it, the film has been embraced by the Seneca community. And the only criticisms that, I'm, that, I've, that have been shared with me have been along those same lines where I think some people would like to see more of that devastation and that loss. But, but the film, we were, it has to be told. What is, what's the magic number, guys? 56, 46? Yeah, and that's PBS length. It has to be exactly 56 minutes long and 40, 40, 56 minutes and 46 seconds, not a second over or under. And so we were bound by a very strict time limit. And as I mentioned earlier, we're trying to balance a national story with, a, with this, this broader human story while certainly operating from a certain Seneca perspective or giving a, shining a light on the Seneca perspective. And so I think I'm very proud of, of the storytelling elevation that we maintain throughout the film. And, you know, and I, and I, and I stand by that. But I, I will say, as Scott mentioned, that I think the, the, the ways in which the film is succeeding in landing with, with, with Seneca people is, is with the young people. Because I think the film does the wonderful job of, of telling the story, not only the Seneca experience, but how was this possible, situating it in this larger American history narrative. People are familiar with the Great Deal and the, the Great Depression, World War II, and this helps them, I think, understand the powers that were at play to make it possible. And I think in that way, helps our people appreciate what was going on behind the scenes and what, what allowed this to happen. Um, so I, I think it's been I think it's uh, it's been claimed by the Seneca people, and I can't be uh, more grateful for that because they were my primary audience. That was our measure of success. So let me just add one more comment to this. Um, it's such an incredibly complex story. We, we could have spent so much more time going into the legal issues. We could have spent more time going into the technical issues of the alternative plan. People always ask, well, what about that alternative plan? What could have been? There were uh, the trauma, you know, we unfortunately, we couldn't get in there. The fact that so many elders passed away after this event, you know, so, so much is left out. However, from the beginning, Paul and Caleb and I, we wanted to create a film that started conversations so people could talk about these things. When you only get 56 minutes and 46 seconds, you have to grab the essence of the story. Um, so this conversation with you, Bridget, right now is exactly what we wanted to have happen uh, after this film. Yeah, absolutely. And if I could just say one thing and follow up with Scott there, <clears throat> you know, you can't answer all the questions in a film, no matter if it's a one hour film or a two hour film, things have to get left out. The only thing a filmmaker can ask for is exactly what Scott said, that it can start a discussion. You put the, you put the information out there. You, you sh the viewer should leave with more questions than answers. And, 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 and that's all that a filmmaker can ask for that people are now asking questions, people want to discuss, people want to know more, to find out more. We want people to go to Google and search and, and learn for themselves. Um, so that's, 
that's all you can ask for as a filmmaker. Do you think that if this happened in 2022, that the government, the people, the world would have let it happen? I would say absolutely. I don't, I, I'm uh, disappointed to say that I think this is just as possible today as it was almost 60 years ago, as it was 100 years ago, 250 years ago, 500 years ago, because this continues to happen and is happening as we speak to Native people around the world. I like to think that perhaps the theft would be more visible, but I think it's every bit as possible as it was 60 years ago. But as I mentioned earlier, I think that Kinzua was a turning point for the Seneca Nation uh, in so many ways. And we are where we are today is, is, is born out of that crisis, of that instinct for survival, of that we've become much more aggressive in our, our efforts to protect our sovereignty our land base, our culture, our language, our ways of life. And we now have the resources to, uh, to better protect ourselves uh, and rally support. But uh, it, is, it is very possible for it to happen again. And I suppose that's part of your, your first question about why we each wanted to tell this film, and I suppose that was part of my motivation, was to get this story out there to make sure that people know what happened to their neighbors in their backyard, maybe across the country, depending on where you watch this film, but people should know what happened. Paul, Scott, how about you? Do you think that this could happen now, today, tomorrow? Um, I... I think Caleb said it perfectly. Um, yes, I do think, unfortunately, that it could happen. Um, I we 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 see it around the. I, I think recently in uh, Brazil, um, indigenous peoples moved off the land for a dam, one of the largest dams in that uh, in that in that country. Um, so yes, it could very easily happen. And it's, it's, it's an unfortunate situation that we allow that to happen. Um, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. What I would like to see um, as a teacher, uh, I, I teach at the college level, but I, I think we really need to look at the curricula in the, the lower grades. I, I don't believe um, the histories of the United States and the Native Nations is well covered. And when you have a voting population that is ignorant of the histories, um, that is at the root of the problem. Not there, just ignorant of the histories, but not even wanting to uh, learn. Yeah, I, I was about to, to say that there certainly is a, an entire faction of, of people, of the population, that simply um, feels this is history, not even modern history, but history, history, way back, and it has no bearing on 
current events. It has no bearing on um, the things that we're doing now. What would you say to them? Oh, I have something. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, the ability for someone to say, that's not relevant history, that's not pertinent to what's going on in the present, is a form of privilege. Because for you to be able to say that means that you and your people, your family, the life that you live is removed from this. Meaning maybe you don't experience this firsthand in your day-to-day life, but I do. My dad does. My family, my community does. And so many other Native people. So it's not... (laughs) It's not, uh, you know, uh, my, my wife has made this, this comment before that it's the different, you know, your history is taught as, uh, as something that you have to take. Mine is taught as, a, uh, as an elective. And I think that's, that's that discrepancy there where history is, is, a, is a shared story of, of what happened in the past and how we got to the present. And to pick and choose parts of it is to not tell a complete story. And, and, and I hesitate to even to draw those lines between you know, Native history, American history, white history, because they're just, they're story elements then. It's not the whole picture. You need all of it to understand the story. Tell me how the lake of betrayal can become a celebration of survival. Well, I think we tried to bring that out in the film, um, and because I think, uh, as Caleb said earlier, <clears throat> it was really a turning point in the Seneca Nation. It forced them, in a way, I don't want to maybe forced isn't the right word. But it allowed them to um, really <clears throat> look at their sovereignty and hang on to their sovereignty and realize that they were not going to allow anything like that to happen again in the nation. And we tried to bring that out at the end of the film. Um, that is, this is a story of survival. This is a story of moving forward, um, understanding the past, but moving forward from it and becoming a stronger nation as a result of that. Is there celebration to be had for the Seneca Nation at this point or not yet? Are we still waiting for the transformation to be complete into not necessarily where you were before, but that idealized thing that you would like to become now. Caleb, that one's for you. Well, I, uh, I suppose there's, uh, there's things to celebrate today. The, uh, the Seneca leadership of the day fought to ensure that we would retain title to those lands that were flooded by the reservoir. So we didn't, we didn't forfeit the land. It's not gone. It's still, it's still, uh, we still possess the title to it. 
which is significant. Uh, we struck what's known as a uh, flowage easement. You know, there's an agreement that the water will be allowed to flow over those lands. And I think that's something worth celebrating, uh, recognizing, you know, and commending the leadership of the day for fighting for that. And I think that, you know, as I alluded to earlier, that the nation today, uh, we were set on a path of sorts following the forced relocation as a result of Kinzua that brought us to where we are today. And I'm very careful about how I talk about this because I don't in any way mean to suggest that this is a silver lining of sorts. Uh, but we have, we are, we, from the day that we were moved, we were set on a new path. And I think over the past almost 60 decades, uh, I give a lot of, I have a lot of respect and admiration for the nation leadership that is that helped guide us out of that period of, of, of tragedy and loss and set us on a course that is much more focused on, on building and protecting what we have than I think we were, we were focused on or able to do before Kinzua. I think in many ways because the leadership of the day accepted the terms of the treaty. They believed that it would protect us from anything like what happened. Um, and I think it was, it was a turning point, it was a wake-up call, and it has been uh, a catalyst for, for so much of what the nation has, has been through and accomplished over the past uh, almost 60 years. Caleb Abrams, thank you so much for joining us. No. Paul Lamont, director of Lake of Betrayal, and Scott Sackett, producer. I appreciate the conversation, gentlemen. Enlightening, eye-opening, and definitely spurring more conversation that needs to be had. It was good talking with you, Bridget. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. We're going to leave you today with a song about Kinzua Dam and the Seneca people. This is As Long As the Grass Shall Grow, written by Peter Lafarge and recorded here by Johnny Cash. A television performance of the song with Johnny Cash, June Carter, and Pete Seeger is used in the Lake of Betrayal documentary. The film is currently available to stream on the Indigenous Connections broadcast series. We will have that link for you on our website, wbfo.org. The Senecas are an Indian tribe of the Iroquois Nation. Down on the New York-Pennsylvania line, you'll find their reservation. After the U.S. Revolution, Corn Planter was a chief. He told the tribe these men they could trust. That was his true belief. He went down to Independence Hall and there a treaty signed that promised peace with the USA and Indian rights combined. George Washington gave his signature, the government gave its hand. They said that now and forevermore that this was Indian land. As long as the moon shall rise, as long as the river 
flow as the rivers as far as the sun will shine as long as the grass shall grow on the Seneca reservation there is much sadness now Washington's treaty has been broken and there is no hope no how across the Allegheny River they're throwing up a dam it will flood the Indian country a proud day for Uncle Sam it has broke the ancient treaty with a politician's grin it will drown the Indian graveyards corn planter can you swim The earth is mother to the Senecas. They're trampling sacred ground. Change the mint green earth to black mud flats as honor hobbles down. As long as the moon shall rise. As long as the river flows. As long as the sun will shine As long as the grass shall grow The Iroquois Indians used to rule from Canada way south But no one fears the Indians now and smiles a liar's mouth the Senecas hired an expert to figure another site, but the great good army engineers said that he had no right. Although he showed them another plan and showed them another way, they laughed in his face and said, no deal, Kinsua Dam is here to stay. Congress turned the Indians down, brushed off the Indians' plea, so the Senecas have renamed the dam. They call it Lake Perfidy. As long as the moon shall rise as long as the river flows as long as the sun will shine as long as the grass shall grow. Washington, Adams, and Kennedy now hear their pledges ring. The treaties are safe, we'll keep our word. But what is that gurgling? It's a backwater from Perfidy Lake. It's rising all the time. Over the homes and over the fields and over the promises fine. No boats will sail on Lake Perfidy. In winter, it will fill. In summer, it will be a swamp, and all the fish will kill. But the government of the USA has corrected George's vow. The father of our country must be wrong. What's an Indian, anyhow? As long as the moon shall rise, look up. As long as the river flows, as the river 
Are you thirsty? As long as the sun will shine. My brother, are you warm? As long as the grass shall grow. Buffalo What's Next is WBFO's daily discussion featuring people and communities that struggle sometimes to be heard in the region at large. We talk about race, education, culture, and our shared humanity each weekday morning on WBFO with a rebroadcast each night at 9. It's also available as a podcast. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also listen on the NPR One and WBFO apps. Thanks for listening.